So how's everyone doing? <laughs> Are you arriving? Yeah. <laughs> it takes a little bit of time, doesn't it? Yeah. Sleepy. Sleepy. Sleepy for bears. How many are sleepy for bears this morning? Yeah. How many are restless? How many have a lot of physical pain this morning? Yeah, welcome to the human predicament. <laughs> See if we can help work with the pain. So there's two things about that. One is, is, is that it's sometimes really helpful when you have a really well-established meditation practice to not listen to the instructions. <laughs> and to just follow what you know and to do that because that actually supports you. So peer and tune in when, you, when what I'm saying is useful for you. Okay? And that's sort of like, it's sort of like given that with any um, kind of... Um, meditation situation, if I'm teaching, what I teach is on invitation. It's not on demand or command. Okay? So tune in when it works for you. But the other thing is, is, is that, you know, meditation is helpful for our minds to become flexible, not rigid. And we get, we dig ruts. I mean, even if we're meditating, we dig ruts. And we have no idea the ruts that we have dug until somebody kind of jostles us a little and says, you know, do it this way. And it's like, oh, I don't want to. It doesn't feel nice. I like to do it the other way. <laughs> you know, and so we have a mind that begins to kind of, um, you know, you know, it contracts and it has an opinion and it kind of has, you know, all kinds of, you know, I don't want to have to feel my body. I don't like feeling my body. It's not what I normally do. Why is she making me do something I don't normally do? <laughs> and then we can hear, you know, the kind of tone and whinging of the mind. And this is all tremendously useful for meditation practice. Because if you can see that in, in a kind of meditation, you can also maybe get a sense of how you do that with yourself in other situations. So, you know, the idea is not to kind of slide into some kind of automatic pilot and then and then you're you're on like don't touch me because I'm on automatic pilot, you know. It's not like that. It, it's actually tremendously engaged, alive, and responsive. And so sometimes what's really helpful is to have a little bit of, of um, you know, where to work, to actually find new ways of, 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 of working with similar situations. So, you know, one of the things that's really noticeable about being in North America, I mean, I lived in England for 20 years. And in England, everybody's used to being uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, a national pastime. <laughs> and so, you know, we would have 
meditation retreats, and you know, there was maybe three weeks of the year when it wasn't miserable cold outside. You know, yeah. so that was like just normal that it'd be miserable cold. And there'd be people in their late 80s, and every single walking meditation, they were outside walking in this miserable cold weather. It's like, just, it's normal, okay? So that's partially related to the climate, you know, of the culture. And here in North America, and I would say probably particularly in Santa Barbara, (laughs) mentioning no names, (laughs) People get highly habituated to feeling very comfortable. And if they're not comfortable, they think something's really gone wrong in their meditation practice. Okay? Well, what has happened is is that people get used to a certain level of sensation, and if it shifts, it feels really like, like something's different or wrong. Okay? This is one thing that really concerns me about North America. Because it's like... I don't know if you guys are in the same program I am, but comfort is not always part of the ticket, you know? Sometimes it is. And the more I learn how to meditate, the more I learn how to let comfort be the ground that I start from. But that is a place where then I can work with quite a lot of discomfort, both physically and emotionally. But when comfort becomes the kind of, like, set point, then we get really agitated when that's not there. So here we are in a society with the economics, you know, kind of like all over the place, and people are really pressed because the standard of living of what was before easeful is now extremely stressful. And the prospects of having to give up the kind of comfort, the, you know, the extra this, the extra that, the extra this, the extra that, working two jobs, it's like, it's really stressful. But if in our practice we understand how to work with discomfort and how to relax within it, then this stuff doesn't rattle us in the same way. It's just not a joke. This is not like for only um, really important meditator types. This is like every one of us is going to have this more and more and more rubbed into our nose. Even people living in Santa Barbara. (laughs) You know? So it's really important to get that. So, you know, in the tradition that I came from, you know, the forest tradition would make a point of doing things that would completely destabilize your comfort zones. So one of the things that we did for a long time was we would have um, all-night meditation vigils, okay? Well, you know, you're tired, everything hurts, you don't want to be sleeping, you don't want to be doing that. But you learn how to stay with something and sustain a resolve and then breathe through it and open up to it and make it, make it a workable situation. Not so that we burn our adrenals out and fry our systems, but so that we learn how to work with diff- difficulties and, and use that as a practice. You know, so if, like, you know, if I don't sleep, I don't panic, you know. Or if I'm dealing with mind states that are like, I can't, breath, you've got to be joking there. Sometimes I can't even feel my body, you know? And, and if we're really used to having things a certain way, then all of that stuff is just really destabilizing. Yeah? So there's two sides. One side is, this is that sometimes you really need not to listen to what I'm having to say and to really trust where you're at and to move into that and to settle into that and go for it. You've got complete permission to go for it.
And then the other part is, is, is that sometimes it's really helpful to really begin to kind of use a practice period of time to see where we're kind of rutted in and to see, am I able to just be responsive to what's happening and how come I can't be? You know? To get some leverage on that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this. You know, one of the drags of robes is these pin-on mics are <laughs> kind of like guaranteed to be all over the place. I need something that goes on my head. Yeah, that's I need, a, I need one of these. I need to be a rock star. Is that better? I don't know where to put it. I maybe I put it on my nose. <laughs> Let's see, I've got a bunch of I've got these wonderful chains on. Let me see if I can make one of them work. Let's see if one of these will work. How's that? Yeah? Okay. Okay. Um how many of you have seen this before? Okay, this is an alms bowl. And an alms bowl is one of the things that's required in order to be ordained in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. So I had this, an alms bowl, for my uh, papaja, my, my first going forth, and I had it for my bhikkhuni ordination. And the reason why this is required is because as a Theravadan bhikkhuni, one of the things that we do is live on alms food. So everything that I have has been given to me. And the food that I eat is given to me. I don't have any mechanism of going and purchasing food myself. All right? So my life and the various different elements of it, you know, the normal stuff, food, shelter, medicine, lodging, what else is there? Robes, robes, <laughs> is given. And the alms bowl is the way that I receive food. So I have made a practice of going on alms round since I've been back in the United States. And usually once or twice a week I go on alms round where I live. And I live in Colorado Springs, which is not renowned for its most um, uh, uh, ecumenical religious attitudes. <laughs> So if I only relied on alms food, then I wouldn't be here today, because I'd be dead. But I, I do go on alms, alms around because it's really important to sustain that practice, and there have been many meals that I have received from alms, and um, it's a very lovely thing. There's also lovely, lovely interactions that happen with people doing that. Because, uh, I mean, you all came because you wanted to be here, but when I'm on alms round, I'm in a kind of a, I'm on a city corner, or I'm in a farmer's market, or I'm in front of a store. Nobody has a clue who I am or why I'm there. And nobody came there in order to, to because I had something that they thought was worthwhile. They're just going about their normal business, and they happen to bump into me, you know. So they don't necessarily have any sense of, Anything. Do you have a question? I was just going to say, and you don't ask. Right. So one of the things, which is very lovely, is, is that we're not allowed to say, Hey, yo! <laughs> this is an alms bowl! And that's for food! <laughs> 
So I have to stay quiet because it's part of my precepts that I'm not actually allowed to ask anybody for anything unless they've made a very specific invitation that I'm allowed to do that. Okay? I can't ask. So if people want to support me, they can say, Sister, is there anything you need? Uh, let me know, and then I can ask. But if they don't ask, I don't say. So I stand quietly with my arms folded. Right? And so then people think, all right, she's begging for money. So they try and come and they put money in. <laughs> and then I say, thank you, but I'm actually not allowed to receive money. And that's really an interesting moment. Because you watch their brain going, <laughs> well, what are you doing? And then I, then they ask a question. I have an opportunity to explain. And so it works. And then they think, I don't have any food. So I'm usually standing right outside a food store. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have <any> <laughs> Can I just give it to you? You can go in and buy it yourself. No, it doesn't work like that. No. So sometimes they figure it out, sometimes they don't. And sometimes people are like, you know, total strangers come up to me, you know, and they're like, thank you for what you're doing, sister. Here, have some food. And what was amazing, and this, I mean, really brought tears to my eyes, was, you know, I don't know if you, how many of you knew last year, you know, how sick I was, but I was dealing with mold illness, and I had a gazillion things going on, and I had all kinds of issues with food, and there were things I couldn't eat, I couldn't eat wheat, I couldn't eat gluten, I couldn't eat this, I couldn't eat that. Mm. While I was in alms round, during that time, people came up to me and they said, Sister, I want to get you some food. Do you have any special needs? <coughs> Amazing. Yeah, amazing. Have you considered a sign that says, I will not take for food? <laughs> that would be against my precepts. I'm not allowed to bargain. So not only am I not allowed to ask, I'm not allowed to say, I will do this for you if you give me that. So I can't ask for things, I can't pay for things, and I can't bargain for things. It's rather different from our North American way. <laughs> I can't trade things. I'll give you this if you give me that. Can't do that. Yeah. Is there a difference if someone were to ask you, as you're standing out front of the food store, what do you want versus do you have any special needs? Yes. If somebody asks me what they, I want, I say, give me what will bring you the most joy. Are you speechless? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's dismantling all of my kind of understandings of how we survive. I, I'm just odd that you can do this. Yeah, well, I have cried a lot. I mean, there have been plenty of times when I've just been scared a lot because I could not actually imagine that it was going to work, you know, that I would have enough food or that there would be enough money to pay for the rent or that somehow it would work, you know. Uh, you, the smile that you see has not always been there. <laughs> you know, it's a learning. But the thing about it, which has been amazing, is is that to today I have had enough support where I've been able to live like this. But I, you know, I need support. I can't do it on my own. And you know, it has been a constant question: is whether or not I'm going to have enough support to continue living like this. 
this. It's like, you know, there's some times when I, I do have questions. <coughs> but the amazing thing is, is, is that for 22 years now, I have lived on alms faith. I've lived on alms. You know, I have not once bought something for myself in 22 years. So, perhaps you can explain why this tradition grows. Okay, so um, the Buddha lived 2,600 years ago, and his interest was in creating a contemplative community. And what he saw was really helpful was to have people who are completely focused on life of, of uh, simplicity, renunciation, and service. Because when people are completely focused on that, then it can be that they have more uh, ability to have depth within their meditation practice. Not exclusively, but it can be that that's the case. Because what can happen for people when they're involved with earning a living and buying stuff and all of that is that their attention gets pulled into multiplicity of how to get, fix, build, buy, sustain, gather, all the rest of that. Mm -hmm. And the attention is no longer available for meditation, study, inquiry, sharing, and service. So these rules about I can't bargain, I can't buy, I can't, with Buddha's rules, in order to create a contemplative community so that the monastics were single-mindedly focused on waking up. And he, the part of the reason why it's like this is so that there's an interdependent relationship with the lay community. So that if I was able to have a stash and live up in the mountains, it's like, well, see you later, guys. You know, I'm out of here. But the way he set it up is, is, is that I cannot live unless there's constant interaction and contact, which means that if there is any benefit in my life, then it will naturally have an impact and rub off on the people that I'm having contact with, either directly through direct teaching or indirectly through example. So another thing which is of interest to me, you know, as our world is going into this kind of crunch time of, with resources, with economics, with, you know, politics, is, is, is that, you know, what people are used to as the norm is rather different from what I'm used to as the norm in terms of standard for medicine, standard for things that I have, standard for the amount of toys that I use, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's not to rub myself on the back, but it's like to say, hey, listen, guys, you know, you can have a lot fewer toys and still play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you really can. You can be absolutely deeply satisfied in yourself and not have a, a tremendous amount of material stuff around you, you know? So, one of the things about this in this contemporary time is, is that it doesn't mean that people have to give up stuff that it's not time for them to give up. But when you're pushed against having to let go of things that you can no longer sustain, then there's like, well, if you look to the monastics, there's a whole lifestyle of people who've been doing this for thousands of years. You know, thousands of years. And the point is not so that we become morbidly depressed. <laughs> the point is so that our lives are actually simple. We've got less things that we have to occupy our time with taking care of in order that we can focus our lives on what for us is really important, which is coming in contact with source, 
and sharing that with others. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, in a way, you touched on this, and you know, uh, you don't, you know, whatever you feel. I mean, it's in some sense could be a fairly mm -hmm. personal question, which is, what about medical care? Medical care in the United States is a nightmare. Right, exactly. Right, so I am just right now in the process of changing my health insurance to a Colorado-based health insurance. Uh -huh. And, you know, what I'm looking at is catastrophic health insurance. Right. So exactly. that it's going to be $1,500 uh, deductible and $2,500 out of the pocket max. And with a 20% uh, copay all the way through. You know? So the funds that are given to Awakening Truth are used for paying rent and for paying things like medical bills that the health insurance doesn't cover. So that the funds are stored for use for these kinds of purposes. But what would be fabulous, really fabulous, if a group of people who really were interested in supporting the monastics in this country were to come up with some kind of a group health insurance policy that we could then, that wouldn't cost so much money and we would get better coverage. You know? But England, you know, England, England was so wonderful because, you know, I was a resident there. I had, I had yeah. British citizenship. I just went into the doctor and got anything I needed. I would just get sorted and they didn't charge you any money. Right, I mean, it's you know? so, a little better after Tuesday, but... Perfect. Right. Yeah. 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 So it's a it's a serious issue, and and you know I have whatever I've had the support. I've been a teacher. I have had the ability to have health insurance, even if the health insurance has not been good quality. It has been health insurance, and there are lots who don't. They just don't have any. You know. So. You know. Yeah. So it's like, it's a serious thing. In order for the Bakuni nun community to really flourish, yeah. there has got to be a way of addressing this. You know, it's a serious thing. Yeah. Anyway, yes, please, Randy. Did you raise that subject with Donna McCarthy? Down in San Diego? You, you met with her. I did meet with her, and I, I, uh, I talked about the Alliance for Bakunis <clears throat> I, I don't actually, you know, I had such a bad cold when I was there, I can't remember what I was thinking, what, what, what our conversations were, but I certainly brought it up in the article that I wrote that was published in present. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, you know, people who read that will begin to put the dots together and figure it out. But for, as, a, as, a, as a topic for the Alliance for the Cooties, that would be a fabulous thing to, to focus on, just fabulous, you know. I mentioned that because I'm no longer involved with it, but she took my role. Okay. Well, I can I can ask her if I said, and if I didn't, I can point it out. <laughs> I think she did read the article, but it was during a crunch time for her. So. Oh, yeah. So, you know, there's practical things and in infrastructure that's needed in order to, to make this happen, particularly in North America. So Asia is kind of set up for supporting monastics, though the nuns are still a little bit um, dinosaurian. You know, they've got um, hospitals for monks in Thailand, 
but the nuns are not allowed to go. <laughs> because they're not considered monastics because they don't have full ordination, but it's illegal for them to have full ordination, so they can't get the care that they need, so that they have to work in order to save the money. So they're, oh, you know, yeah, so this is, you know, the situation. So the value of having bhikkhuni ordination is to have a kind of level platform in terms of legality that hopefully this stuff can actually begin to shift and start. But the point of the alms bowl is food. <laughs> and we're getting to the point where it's the point of the alms bowl. So uh, if you have any offerings you would like to make, then that would be lovely. So what I would like to suggest is that people go get their packed lunches and help share a little bit. Now there's lots of you and one of me, and so I will I will receive whatever it is that you have offered, but I'm not going to be able to eat it all most likely. So I will take what I can't eat and share it out with the rest. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.